You know, there are some epistles uh, shorter perhaps, uh, some books in the Bible a little bit easier to follow because perhaps there are a narrative uh, like the book of Acts, a little easier to follow because you know, the, the writer Luke is telling us events that take place so we can follow it here. Uh, more ideas than events. And as far as our lesson today is concerned, we're in the second main section of the epistle where Paul is demonstrating the universal nature of the church by explaining how God brings both Jesus, excuse me, not Jesus, but how God brings both the Jews and the Gentiles into one body, which is the church through Jesus Christ. So the church is universal uh, not because it does everything exactly the same way, they have exactly the same time for worship, or, but rather because disparate peoples have been brought together into one body. And that's the point he's trying to get across here in Ephesians. So he's highlighted this idea by showing the extraordinary lengths that God has gone to in order to bring the Gentiles into the church. The assumption for the reader is that the story of how the Jews were brought into Christ is well known, having been documented in the Old Testament. In other words, the Jews don't have to be taught how they were brought into the church. They, they know that. They, they followed you know, the prophets and the, the prophecies and the life of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. And so he doesn't have to teach the Jewish Christians how they were brought into the church. But he does have to teach the Gentiles about this idea. And so the story of God's effort for the Gentiles is recounted by Paul to his Ephesian brethren. Now the reason for this is that there were problems between the Gentiles and Jewish uh, Christians um, and they were having problems accepting each other in the body of Christ. You know the, uh, how do you, I guess we call it the demographics. The Jews were in the minority numerically in this church. There were, you know, no matter how many there were, the Jews were a smaller number. However, they were the first to receive the gospel. And then on the other side, the Gentiles, they were the numerical majority, but they were the newer converts and they were less educated religiously. So each had some kind of bragging points, if you wish. And that's what was causing some of the trouble. So in the last lesson that we had on this book, we looked at what Paul says to remind these Gentile Christians what God had done for them through Jesus Christ in order to get them to where they were. In other words, you don't have any reason to brag. You might be in the majority numerically, but you, that's not a reason you need to, to boast. He was doing this to counter feelings of resentment towards the Jews, which may have been poisoning their overall Christian attitude, which should have been one of gratitude. Never mind feeling proud that you're a lot, never mind the competitive nature that you have, your feeling ought to be humility because of the way that God had brought you into the church. In other words, the Gentile should be grateful to God, not resentful towards the Jewish brethren in the church. And he says that before Christ, before knowing Christ, they were apart from God. Uh, they did not belong with the people of God. He tells them they had no hope of salvation. 
And he says even if they were converted to Judaism, they were still considered second class citizens. That's when they were converted to Judaism. They should be happy now that they're converted to Christianity. They have a you know, full fellowship. They're no longer second class citizens. All reasons that they should be grateful to be in the body of Christ. So Paul continues, as we're going to pick up the lesson here, Paul continues, now that they are in Christ, he says, they have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. They don't have to go through some other intermediary. And he tells them that they're equal partners with the Jews. They're not second class citizens. They're equal partners in the kingdom of God. They're equal partners in the family of God. They're equal partners in the temple of God. And Paul uses all these terms, the kingdom, the family, the temple, all of these refer to the church in one way or another. Now, in addition to this, Paul says that they now have hope of salvation. Didn't have that before, but now they have a hope of salvation. And we know in the Bible when we talk about hope, hope isn't wishful thinking. It's not, I keep my fingers crossed. You know, some people say, oh, I hope, you know, and they keep their fingers crossed. That's not the kind of hope that, that is in the Bible. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation. You are confident that you will receive the thing that God has promised you. That's biblical hope. So he says, now that these Gentiles have been added to the church, they have a hope, a confident expectation of salvation, something they didn't have as pagans. As pagans, they had no hope at all. He says they have unity with everyone, no longer second class citizens, no longer the court of the Gentiles, the court of the Israelites. Now everyone is equally part of the body. And he says they now have value as the people of God. No one person in the church, regardless of his or her gifts or talents or position in the church, no one person is more valuable in God's sight than the other. Everyone has equal value. So with this said, Paul ends his comments regarding what God has done for the Gentiles and he's going to offer a prayer of thanksgiving on their behalf. He's going to begin this passage of thanks in chapter 3, verse 14. But first, he has one other thing he wants to discuss with them. So if you have your Bibles, the the, uh, passages will be up on the the screen there. But if you'd prefer reading in your Bibles, go to Ephesians and we'll be in chapter number 3. So he's going to begin this prayer of thanks in chapter 3, verse 14. And, uh, but before he gets there, as I said, he, he wants to talk about one other thing. And the other thing he, want to talk, he wants to talk about is he wants to give details of his own very special ministry among the Gentiles. Now he's listed the things that God has done for them. Now he's going to give them some information about the person that God chose specifically to minister the gospel to the Gentiles. Yet one more effort on God's part to bless them in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's apostolic ministry to the Gentiles, that's the information contained, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. So let's read verse 1. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So he refers back to the original reason why he's in jail. And if we were to read 
You know, Acts chapter 21, uh, back uh, in Acts chapter 21, we find out the reason that he's in jail. Acts 21, I won't read the whole passage, but in verse 28 and 29 it says, Then Paul took the man and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each of them. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the multitude and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So that episode led to his imprisonment. The idea being that he was associating with Gentiles. And so Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm associating with you and this association, this ministry I've been given has gotten me in a lot of trouble. I've been arrested for this. So he's been arrested by the Jews because of their opposition to his work among the Gentiles. So because of his ministry in Christ's name to the Gentiles, by the time he's writing the Ephesian letter, he's already spent almost three years in jail. Bless you. In chapter 3, verse 2, he reviews the idea of his own special ministry. All in one sentence. Verse 2. Let's read that. Now we're back in Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 2. He says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. So he says, You have heard, have you not, of the special ministry God gave me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? And so his apostleship is referred to as grace because it was wholly undeserved. You know, in Paul's mind, he didn't deserve to be an apostle. He knew he was an apostle. He served as an apostle. He had the authority of an apostle, but he always remembered he didn't deserve to be an apostle. Why? Well, because he had persecuted the Lord's church. That's why he calls his apostleship the grace that was given to me. Not only his salvation, but the ministry he's been given, it's a grace that he's received. And so he keeps going in verse 3. We're going to read through the passage. Verse 3. Among them we, excuse me, verse 3 in chapter 3, uh, that by the, revel, uh, by the revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So his apostleship to the Gentiles, he calls it a, mi- a mystery. This mystery was made known to him at his conversion. Uh, We don't have to go back there, but in Acts chapter 22, um, the Lord says to him, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So he knew what his ministry was. It's not just he thought, well, you know, I, I know how to speak Greek and I know how to get along with these people. I might as well go there. No, he was specifically given this ministry by Jesus. And so we continue chapter three. Uh, beginning in verse 4, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in, order, uh, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power. So he explains what God revealed to him when He called him to His, his general ministry, His specific ministry. A ministry that had as its objective the global news that Gentiles were also eligible for God's grace and blessings. That was news to the Jews. And he was a Jew and he was a Pharisee. I can just imagine how difficult, you know, not only, oh Lord, you really are the Lord, you know, that first understanding that he had been persecuting the one who was his Lord. And then the second wake up was, you're going to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And I, I don't know, but I'm wondering if Paul, the Jew, the Pharisee said, you want me to do what? <laughs> That's the mystery. This was not made known before, but now has been revealed through the apostles and through their ministry. And it had been a difficult issue in the early church. I mean, in Acts 15, we read about you know, the, the, the meeting in, uh, in Jerusalem with Paul and the apostles in the church uh, to uh, talk about his ministry among the Gentiles. Was that a, a legitimate thing? And also, did the Gentiles need to become Jews before they became Christians? That was really the battle going on. And at some point the Jewish Christians, some were saying, you know, I guess the Gentiles can become Christians, but first they need to be circumcised and then they need to do this. In other words, they had to become Jews. And Paul argued against this idea. And the idea of the mystery, not only the mystery on how God was going to save mankind, but the the, the other idea that he was going to bring all people to him in exactly the same way, Jew and Gentile. And Paul was the instrument of that, you know, that bringing together and unifying those people. So we keep going in verse 8. He says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the ministry which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So Paul the persecutor was given the gift of revealing to the Gentiles the riches available for them in Christ Jesus. Riches created and preserved in time by God. Now remember we've talked about the riches right at the beginning. All the riches of heaven, forgiveness, righteousness, eternal life, sonship. You know, he's saying all of these riches I was given the, the grace, the, the wonderful task, if you wish, of announcing to the Gentiles that these riches were for them, not just for the Jews. Riches that men could not obtain by themselves. That's why it's grace. Riches that men couldn't even understand. That's why it's enlightenment. And it is now revealed, he says, and given freely to them by God through Christ, through the ministry of Paul. So in verse 10 he goes on and says, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. Why this revelation now? So that the revealing of God's redemptive work would be done both in heaven and on earth. Let's go to 1 Peter, shall we, just to shed some light on this particular passage. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Peter says, when he talks about it, 
you know, he's talking about the gospel and God's plan and so on and so forth. Peter says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now listen, things into which angels long to look. So now, now men know and now angels know and now the church is the instrument of that revelation. Peter is saying that even the angels didn't know God's full plan. And the prophets who spoke about Jesus coming and what He would do, they didn't know the full picture of the plan. And Paul is saying now that plan has been revealed, heaven and earth, to the angels and to men. Again, he's talking about his own ministry. What a privilege it is. And you know what? It continues to be a privilege, even in the modern age. To sh- you know, there's nothing that I enjoy that gives me more spiritual satisfaction than seeing someone who did not know the gospel, you know, not a clue about what the gospel was about, what God was about, and have them through study and so on and so forth come to an understanding of the gospel and obey the gospel and see the joy in their heart and see their life change. What a magnificent and wonderful moment it is for those who share in that, whether you're a minister or a member of the church with no particular gift to to speak publicly. Many of you have brought your your children, your family and your friends to Christ. You know what I'm talking about, how wonderful that is. So Paul is saying, hey, this was given to me. I'm the first one that has to go out and do this. So we see how God considers the church as a precious thing. Paul calls it the pillar and the support of the truth, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And so he he rounds out this this passage in verse 11 and 12 and he says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. This mystery, he says, hidden for all ages, has come to be known through Jesus Christ, who is now, he says, our mediator between ourselves and the Father. And so let's summarize a little what he said in this kind of long passage here about his ministry, about the church. First of all, he says, God had a plan to group together all men into one body of saints, which were which would be reconciled to Himself. Next he says, God prepared and worked His plan to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ, through the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. Then he says, God used different men and women and angels to accomplish His plan without them knowing the full extent of the plan. And then he says, now that Christ has completed the work, He is using the body of saints, which is the church, to reveal His plan to all men and to angels as well. And of course, in all of this, He kind of puts His own ministry into context. He's saying, and I'm I'm that apostle to whom God has given the task of revealing this mystery to to the Gentiles. Now I read verse 13, but I'll read it again here. If we can get it up on the, uh, on the screen, it says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. 
So he asked them not to be discouraged on account of his imprisonment. Remember, he's writing to them. He's in prison. Why? Well, he's been in prison for years. All the work among the Gentiles seems doomed to stop. Their position is threatened. They may see, you know, they may see things in this way. You know, the, leader of the, the leader of the cause, if you wish, among the Gentiles, he's in jail. What's going to happen? So Paul reassures them in two ways. First, he says, he describes how their, how their position has been in God's plan always. And he considers them precious. In other words, don't worry. God is the one who takes care of you, not me. Yes, I may have had the task of you know, preaching the gospel to you, but God is the one who takes care of the church. And uh, I might make an aside here. Sometimes when I'm talking to some of the brethren uh, in mission churches, you know, small congregations, 30 members, 50 members, and so on and so forth, and sometimes the preacher or the leaders may be a little discouraged you know, because the work is so hard in the field. And the thing I tell them over and over again is, hey, it isn't your church. It's God's church. God is the one that takes care of His church. God is the one who adds. You, know, you just keep ministering. You just keep serving, doing what you're supposed to be doing. Let God worry, quote, about the church. It belongs to Him. And He loves His church. And He loves it more than you do even. And so Paul is, in a sense, saying that. Don't worry. God is the one who takes care of us. And secondly, his imprisonment is a testimony to how important the work among the Gentiles really is. He's like an ongoing symbol. You know, sometimes uh, people with causes, nobody pays attention, and then all of a sudden the leader of the cause is imprisoned somehow, and all of a sudden that cause gets a lot of attention. Sometimes it's not a worthy cause. We know that. But in this case it was a worthy cause and Paul is saying my imprisonment is a witness. It's putting our case in front of the entire population. So if they realize these things they will not lose heart and we shouldn't either when we fail because God wants to save us. I've spoken to a lot of people who feel sometimes a little hesitant about their salvation, not so sure. And I try to remind them you know God wants to save you. It's not like you're hanging on by your fingertips, you know, like the heaven is up here, or salvation is up here, and you're just hanging on with your fingertips you know, and God's going trying to get your finger. He wants to save you. He's put all these things into place to save our souls. We should never think that God is you know, trying to push us away. He's not. He's trying to draw us to Him. Satan is the one who doesn't want us to be saved. So Paul's intercessory prayer for the Gentile begins here, verse 14. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So he picks up where he left off in verse 1. And he says, because of God's provision for all men in this most extraordinary way, Paul is moved to pray. And so he says in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He prays to God the Father. The word father means source. Some people think father, the original source, the original word, the root word means male, but it means source. So he prays to God the Father who is the source of all mankind. That's why all men need to be united in Christ in order to come to the Father, to the source. So he says Christ 
makes it possible for all men separated from God, separated from one another, to be united back to one another and to their uh, spiritual father. That's why Jesus, you, know, you always hear Jesus is the answer. That can be, that's like a key. It fits so many locked doors. He's the answer to revelation. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you have a hard time understanding the gospel and the prophets. He's the answer to our relationship with God the Father because it's through Christ that we, that we come to the Father. And then in verse 16 in his prayer he explains these ideas and he continues. He says that he will grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So now he's asking for something. Before he asked that God would enlighten them so they could better grasp the blessings that they have in Jesus Christ. Now he asks that God strengthen them in various ways. So strengthen, he says, the inner man, which refers to what? Well, the soul, the heart, the spirit. Strengthen that. Secondly, strengthen with spiritual power, not human power, not ability. Strengthen them according to God's ability and resources. And provide this strength through the Holy Spirit, not through self-will, not through practice, not through physical effort, but through the Holy Spirit. Of course, this brings us to another question, which is, well, how does the Holy Spirit strengthen the inner man with power? I understand the words, but what I don't understand is, how does it get done? The Bible describes two ways. Um, First of all, God strengthens the inner man through His word. Acts chapter 20 verse 32 says, and and here Paul is speaking to the elders at Ephesus, and he says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The word has the power to build up. Obviously, he doesn't mean build up like put on muscles or gain an inch of height. He's talking about building up, strengthening the inner man. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 15 and 16 that God's word can lead us to salvation. It can teach us. It can examine and correct our thinking and understanding. It can train us to live righteously in service to God and others. So how does God strengthen us through the Holy Spirit in the inner man? Through the word. I mean the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us God's word. 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21. Peter says, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So how am I strengthened in the inner man? Through God's word. Why why do you think the elders have thought it wise not only to have a, a, a communion service on Sunday morning as we ought with preaching, but also to add another period of teaching and encouragement on Sunday evening? And even add to that a third period where we can gather together to hear the word on Wednesday night. Why? Because of tradition? Well, sometimes. But I believe it's because of wisdom's sake. Because our spiritual leaders understand that it is through the word of God that we are strengthened in the inner man. And so the word is in competition with 
oh, what did I hear? 18,000 commercials a week? 18,000 ads a week we see online, on TV. We cannot go anywhere without seeing an advertisement for something. Day after day, and the younger you are, the more of those you see. Day after day after day, bombarded with the world. And we set aside what? For actual teaching of the word, maybe an hour and a half to two per week. So he says the first way is through the word. The second way is through indwelling. Acts 2.38. What did Peter say to them? Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter the Apostle tells us that at baptism we not only receive forgiveness for sins but the indwelling of the Spirit. Now some have taught that this, is, this only means that the Holy Spirit dwells in us only through the Word. In other words, we read the Word of God and the concepts and ideas you know, come into our minds and into our hearts and that's how the Holy Spirit dwells in us. However, Romans chapter 8 verse 11 Paul um, describes a much more dynamic experience and reality of the Spirit of God within us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. That's twice he said that. I believe the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit, not just words, resides in the Christian. Now I can't explain how God's Spirit coexists with my spirit in my body. I, I don't understand the metaphysical, you know, the mechanic. How does that happen? I, I don't know how that happens. I only know that the Bible says that the Spirit of God indwells dwells within me. And I believe that. I don't have to explain it. I have to believe it. And I do. But in Ephesians, Paul says the Spirit strengthens the inner man. And the question is, how does he do this? And we said he does it through the word, but he also does it in another way. First of all, the Spirit within us intercedes for us. Stay in Romans chapter 8. This time go down to verse 26 and Paul says, and in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. If the Spirit of God dwells in us just through ideas then how do you, you know, how do you reconcile Romans 8.26? The Spirit enables us to connect with God with confidence in prayer. And this confidence strengthens our faith and our hope. I know that God hears me. I know that God understands me, even when I'm not understanding myself. Why? Because the Holy Spirit intercedes for me. The Holy Spirit also comforts us. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, says the following, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Listen, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit in continue to increase. Not the comfort that comes from counseling with a psychiatrist, 
Not the comfort that comes from encouragement given to us from others that we understand and appreciate. The Holy Spirit's direct comfort that grants us the peace of mind and the peace within our heart that goes beyond human understanding. What do you think Paul is talking about when he says peace beyond understanding? Everything in my life may be falling apart and yet I have no fear because the Lord is with me. This kind of comfort. Paul is saying this is the comfort that the Spirit gives us. And then we go back to Ephesians again. Another way that the Holy Spirit encourages us is through enlightenment. Chapter one of Ephesians, we already went over this, but there's another reference. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. It's the Holy Spirit that does this work of enlightening us to God's will and purpose and His word. We should not be afraid of that. So Paul prays for God to strengthen the Gentiles in all of these different ways so they can achieve certain spiritual goals. He's prayed for the means to reach the following two ends. And so we'll finish up chapter 3 verses 17 to 19. He says, so you know, he says to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So I want you to be strengthened in the inner man through the word, through the spirit. For what purpose? Number one, the first goal, to permit them to surrender more of themselves to Christ. Christians need to be strengthened in the inner man and in faith so that Christ can take a greater possession of them. Only the spiritually strong can be meek as Christ is meek. Only the spiritually strong can crucify the flesh as Christ was crucified. Christian life is not for weaklings. It's not for scaredy cats. The idea is that the Holy Spirit strengthens us so that there can be more of Christ in us and less of us in us. The second goal, the second goal, he wants the Spirit, you know, through the Word, through the Spirit, to be strengthened in the inner man. Why? To enable them to truly understand the capacity of God's love. You know, there's a thing in counseling, a dictum, that people cannot give what they have not received. If you've grown up as a child and you've not received any encouragement, if you've not received any genuine physical love, you know, uh, uh, which is proper, then growing up it's very hard for you to do that. For, I'm not saying impossible, you can learn to do that, but it doesn't come naturally. Well in the same way we who are so small, our capacity for love is so small, it's hard for us to understand God's love because we can't get our minds around it. But it's important to know and understand how wide God's love is because it's the source of our joy. 
So as Christ dwells in us and we are growing in Him, we begin to see that God's love is endless. It surpasses knowledge. We can't know the end of it. If we're growing in this understanding, then there is no end to our development either. And consequently, we begin to experience the nature of eternal life that we are called to. Do you you understand what he's saying? Please, God, make their capacity to understand and grasp your love. Open it up. Bigger capacity. Because in doing so, they'll understand you more. And in understanding you and in experiencing you, they will begin to experience the life that they have been called to in Christ Jesus. Not this life, the next life. So in making this prayer, Paul wants them to be filled to the brim with the things of God, love and joy and peace and understanding, so on and so forth. The last two verses, uh, 20 and 21, let's finish it off. It says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That, those two verses called a doxology. A doxology refers to spontaneous praise. Paul is praying for them. He's explaining what blessings they have. And in the middle of it, he's so overcome by the grace and wonder of it all, he just He just breaks out into praise and he praises God who he says is able to do more than we ask, more than we think, more than we can even imagine. I mean salvation through Christ. Who could have ever imagined such a thing? And he talks about God who is also able to do beyond our wildest imagination using what we already possess. And what do we already possess? The word, the spirit, So in this passage of spontaneous praise, we see that God is glorified and praised by His church. God is glorified and praised only in connection with Christ. And God is glorified and praised in this way forever. So just a couple of finishing thoughts here and the lesson will be ours. First of all, we need to understand we are this church today. He's talking about us. We're these people. That prayer is for us. Secondly, we are the instrument that delivers the message of salvation in the 21st century. Why do you think we go to the trouble of streaming the class and the sermons and the the, the, Bible teaching? Why? Because we're responsible to get this message out to as many people as we can in our generation. I'm not responsible for what happened in 1922. And I will not be responsible for what happens in 2090. But in 2012, okay, it's, I'm at bat. It's my turn. It's your turn. Thirdly, we have the word and we have the spirit today in the same measure as they had it. And finally, Paul's prayer should be our prayer. More of Christ in us. More of God's love to grow deep in us. And instead of asking for more things or more time or more comfort, We should ask God to expand our capacity to be filled with spiritual blessings. In other words, let's ask Him to give us a better taste of the world to come, not the world that we're in. All right, we went over a little. I appreciate your attendance. That's the class for this time. We'll uh, we'll pick it up in chapter four in lesson number eight. We're dismissed.